Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Jim Balsilli, businessman, philanthropist, former co-CEO of BlackBerry's Rim, and founder of some interesting organizations, including the Center for International Governance Innovation and the Canadian Council of Innovators. Jim has been a witness at my parliamentary committees on a few occasions now, and he joins me to discuss the need for an innovation agenda and what an innovation agenda needs to look like in the modern and global economy. Jim, thanks for joining me. How would you describe Canada's productivity versus comparable countries? Well, it's languished over the past 20 years. We've had no growth in our innovation outcomes or multi-factor productivity, and our GDP per capita in the last 10 years has gone down 3% for the IMF, while the U.S. has gone up approximately 34% per capita. So it means how much money do people have to pay for themselves and the society they live in. So it's languished. And why has it languished? Why is Canada so much less productive? Well, the world has changed in the past 40 years in a degree and rapidity that is unprecedented from a, a tangible to an intangible economy. And our policies haven't changed or been updated to reflect the contemporary economy. In the mid-70s, 16% of the S&P 500 market value was intangibles. Now it's 91%. So intangibles is the basis of, of wealth, power, and security in, in economies now. And we need to update our policies to reflect this changed economy. And we are looking at a new throne speech on September 23rd. One of the key issues is how we can see economic growth. How do we build back better? But how do we also help restore the Canadian economy and in doing so, how can we improve the way that we were doing business before and, and hopefully have a more competitive and a faster growing economy on the way outside of this? And there is an inflection point where you've been advocating for these kinds of changes for many years, but here's an opportunity to see them through. What are the kinds of changes that you'd like to see? There are many things we can do. And the old expression, the, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, the <laughs> second best time now. And this pandemic ha has really laid bare and accelerated changes that were already happening. So really in the era of intangibles, there are two categories. In the knowledge-based economy, you have intellectual property and the data-driven economy, you have data. And so you really need to have strategies for intellectual property and data, whether it's for uh, healthcare investments or, or clean tech investments. The most critical thing is to generate intangible stock assets that you can commercialize and control for the economic and non-economic benefit of Canada. So you need an IP strategy, you need a data strategy, you need strategies to preserve your best talent, you need strategies to grow your best companies, you need updated analytical frameworks that you look at, you know, quote unquote, free trade agreements and foreign direct investments. So it's a, it's a different lens than it is the traditional production economy of, of, of just exchanging produ produced goods which was the basis for Canada's prosperity and, quite frankly, the world's prosperity for 50 years, 60 years post-World War II. There was a recent report published by the Council of Canadian Innovators. You helped to lead that organization, that's right? Yes, I do. I'm the, I'm the founder and co-chair of it with my good friend, John Ruffalo. Well, I found that report interesting. I mean, you've highlighted the importance of intangible assets. And in reading that, noted intangible assets as a percentage of the Canadian economy has actually shrunk as these kinds of assets in the global economy have soared at the same time. So Canada obviously is not keeping up in the modern economy in, in the way that we have to. The first recommendation from that report 
is straightforward, doesn't touch on this particular conversation, but I think is right in that it requires a safe return to workplaces, a clear plan for a safe return to schools and workplaces. And I've recently written to colleagues to say that the best strategy for job creation in the short term is rapid and accessible testing on a massive scale. And the best strategy for jobs in the long term is a vaccine. So let's maintain those health efforts and a clear plan towards health. But the rest of the report is really focused on this conversation that you are raising, that we need national standards for IP, national standards for data. Now, national strategies can be vague. Let's take them one by one. But when we talk about IP as an example, what would be some concrete initiatives that would start to inform that strategy? Well, there are many things that we could do for that. And I've testified on your industry committee on that. The first thing would be an updated framework on foreign direct investment, that it has different spillovers for the intangible economy than the traditional production economy. Because If you build a new automotive plant or an oil upgrader, that brings in supply chains and management expertise and technology, but it works the opposite way, uh, and they pay taxes, and and it works the opposite way in the, the intangibles economy. So we have to have the right analytical framework because our prosperity strategies have actually been prosperity erosion strategies. The other thing is our approach to scientific research has, has, you know, posits that it'll create innovation has really been to spread our knowledge and diffuse knowledge, which is noble in the research uh, world, but we don't have an intellectual property generating and commercializing strategy for the benefit of Canada. And that's been very public, for instance. We have a ton of our top universities, a deep partnership with Huawei, which makes China richer and more secure at Canada's expense, which our taxpayers fund. And so Those are a couple of the areas there. The other one is on data strategies, they have non and economic effects. And I know you know this well in your great leadership on the the ethics committee and and also in the international grand committee is we need strategies to to regulate and control data in in whether it's trusts or co-ops or by sector so that we can harness the benefits for our economies and our sectors whether it's for agriculture or healthcare or smart cities, rather than have those benefits go to foreign economies. So IP works on a principle of restriction. It's very technical. If you're not deliberate and expert and systemic about it, it moves at the stroke of the pen or a click of the mouse outside of the country. And so if you're not deliberately focusing on it, you tend to lose just about all of it. And we haven't had that deliberate focus. And those are a few of the concrete areas, but there there are more. On data, I certainly learned a lot in the last parliament and certainly worked as hard as I could to learn more in the course of the Ethics and Privacy Committee and our International Committee as well. On IP, I've been learning more in this parliament as part of the Industry Committee, and it's pretty shocking to to learn the level of investment that Canada brings to bear in our research institutions and our, our education institutions, and that the value of that research doesn't necessarily come back to us. That is correct. It's a study done by Canada's largest clean tech firm called Cycle Capital with a, with a top expert called Louis Carboneau. And they studied, as an example, our published research in clean tech for agriculture. So we like to talk about being an agriculture technology superpower. And Canada, at the time, published 4% of the world's papers on clean tech for agriculture, which is Excellent. But we only owned 0.03% of the patents from published IP. So we under-rotated on the ownership side of it 
to the tune of approximately 99%. So you're right. We, we, if you don't have a strategy to own it, then you really don't get any of it. And you can't commercialize something you don't own. So that means you don't get the innovation growth, the intangibles growth, the prosperity growth. And as someone who is certainly not expert in the area of IP, but also as someone who doesn't like to reinvent the wheel, are there other countries that you could point to to say, here is a model that we could obviously adapt for the Canadian context, but here's a model that works? Many. And I chaired a panel on this very recently, and we studied other economies, the Scandinavians, the Singaporeans, the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Germans, the Israelis, the Americans, the Chinese, (laughs) um, have very, very systemic strategies. I'll give you an example. Everyone talks about the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, where there's 72 top research entities. They have one specialized center for all 72 research centers that's responsible for generating IP and managing your contracts and commercialization, where when you take, let's say, a province of Ontario, we have between 30 and 40 of these for publicly funded research through our research institutes and our post-secondary schools. So we've taken, a, I would say, a fragmented, non-core approach to it, where these other countries have made it a place of extraordinary priority and expertise and capacity building because they know that's where the game is played. And that's how I began my conversation with you is that that we have to make this the utmost priority in a changed world. Should have been done 20 years ago, but hopefully the, the throne speech is a chance to begin it. And is that centralization of expertise in IP that the research facilities and experts and entrepreneurs can then go to as sort of a one-stop shop? Is that what you envision the IP collective to be? And this IP collective, we had proposed as a government, a pilot of sorts, I suppose, and that never really got off the ground. But is that what we, we would see through this IP collective? That is the kind of thing. The IP collective is focused on clean tech, which is good. It's a pilot. It was announced in budget 2018. Prospectively, it, it, it could be announced very soon. And I would say those kinds of things have to be much bigger, much more urgent, broader in sector and broader in their support services. And when we had our panel on IP, we recommended not just IP collective, but much more systemic education. We don't teach how to do this, but other countries do. And we also need other kinds of support services, advisory services, support in the contracting and litigation. Unfortunately, one sentence in an agreement can cost a promising company its whole, its whole future. And so you need a suite of support services and capacity building and collectives. And that's what we've seen other successful economies do. And that's what we've advocated for Canada. And when we move to the data context, you rightly mentioned it's not only about economics. I've worked through privacy issues with the principal focus of privacy and data being a human rights issue. But we know that it holds value both personally for our autonomy and and our lives, but it also holds great value on an aggregate basis for our economy. The EU has the GDPR in place, and we should, I hope, get closer to that this fall or maybe in the new year with legislation that had been promised in June. But do you see a way to chart that path to to both protect the privacy rights of individuals, but also monetize data at an aggregate level for society as a whole? Absolutely. I mean, there's a false dichotomy people make that it's a trade, it's a choice between human rights, prosperity or innovation. And in fact, they reinforce each other. And you remember with the clean car legislation of California, people said this will kill the car industry. And when you put in that legislation, you got better environment, 
record profits and better cars. And so by all means, we can have uh, both preservation of human rights and prosperity on this, but we have to put the normative objectives in our legislation very clearly, and then we must parallel that with economic strategies to generate the data uh, prosperity, just like we did as a country 100 years ago when we built all of our tangible economy systems, whether it's grain co-ops and mutual companies for insurance and credit unions for banking. We created all the institutions and the frameworks for a production economy that built this country 100 years ago, now it's time to create the kind of frameworks and institutions in an intangible economy of IP and data uh, that has, as you say in data, economic and non-economic effects. Well, I certainly found it interesting to read the report from the Council of Canadian Innovators. And here we see a difficult economic circumstance for, for many innovators across the country and many entrepreneurs across the country. And yet here we have entrepreneurs calling for new global standards for the protection and access of data, new privacy rules. And in a different context, we've seen big tech previously argue that this just amounted to red tape. Well, but that's because data has a structure to it. And it's the technical frame, it's got economies of scale and scope and network externalities and information asymmetries that break markets, which means it creates monopoly. And of course, the hijacking of personal autonomy even takes that to a higher extreme. So of course, the dominant want their monopolies, whereas we want fair access for our economies for a fair economic shake, which all countries are looking at because the US, throughout the US and Europe, they're bringing in their competition authorities. And as I said before, you want the economic prosperity, but you also want to protect the citizens, both for the private good and the collective uh, effects of data. So, but of course, big tech doesn't want regulation because they're appropriating public good and personal autonomy for their private gain, uh, regardless of the adverse effect on societies and individuals. And that that's not good for Canada. A short pause there following on that comment, but I was hardened in some ways. Sometimes you feel like your committee work doesn't lead to much in the end. But we saw recently the Competition Bureau has undertaken an investigation into Amazon's practices and, and use of data in an anti-competitive way, potentially. And that tracks very closely to questions that we were asking a year prior at the International Committee. One hopes that maybe we played some small role in, in, in pushing things forward. If I may, there's two other things. One, the Competition Bureau also recently announced it's going to be cooperating with other competition bureaus around the world, including the U.S. FTA and DOJ on these regulating big tech. And recently, the, the, the Competition Bureau did the maximum fine and a consent decree with Facebook on their abusive practices of user privacy. So our Competition Bureau, I think, is flexing its muscles to the fullest of its capacity and that's encouraging. And I think we should give our privacy commissioner the same kind of powers. And of course, the heritage minister recently said he's going to start taking these matters seriously, which is a very encouraging U-turn for, for the government. And, and I think that's building upon the kinds of leadership that you've advocated that I think charted the course that everybody's coming around to. It does feel that our government and other governments really are coming around to seize the very same issues that our International Committee of Parliamentarians has been working on for quite some time. So it, it, it's, you're right, it's not just the one issue that's hardening, but there, there are others as well. Also, you know, the Competition Bureau, when they first came to our Privacy Committee, they were not dismissive outright, but they 
didn't see the strong connection between data and competition in a way that we did. And they have changed their view significantly, which is, which is important. So they also changed their commissioner. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So to close off this IP conversation, much of the advocacy in the report focuses on empowering Canadian innovators through strategic procurement, ensuring that Canadian companies are a significant focus and we rely upon Canadian companies in the course of our pandemic relief efforts that the example is Canadian fintech companies have been used in other countries, but not here in Canada. How does this square though with this notion of Canada first, which Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader has started to put forward and it has echoes of sort of Trumpian make America great again in some ways, although he to be fair, has noted he's much more supportive of free trade and he wants to push back against more protectionism. But it does have echoes of some protectionism, picking winners, which has potential problems. How how do we square an innovation ecosystem where we are prioritizing Canadian companies as against other interests of the government, which is securing the best possible product for Canadian citizens and Canadian consumers? One has to be careful of rent-seeking behavior, but one has to understand in the change of the economy, you're not competing on cost and exchanging tangible goods. You're competing on becoming the landlord that collects the rent uh, on owning intangible stock assets. So this leads to what I would call neo-mercantilism, that it's a rivalrous system and companies have to work in partnership with their uh, the government and their companies. So Canada took neoliberalism farther than anybody else, and other economies realized that you have to have this public-private framework where you you technically generate these assets. So I wouldn't call it protectionism. I would call it understanding the way the world works. And there's been a a recent case that's been very prominent in the newspaper where our our foreign affairs bought Chinese scanners uh, over a Canadian company that had a lower price with all kinds of reports that leads, this leads to security exposures in all of our embassies around the world. And it's just unimaginable how one couldn't look at procurement in, in its totality. This is a, an extreme example of imprudence because you had a Canadian vendor at a lower price and did not have the security risk. So something's, not, something's broken in how we look at both our procurement and our generation of strong companies and, and our need to generate the prosperity strategies, because if we don't do this, we have to remember our GDP per capita has gone down in the last 10 years while the U.S. has soared and Germany's soared even more. And we have to ask the question, we love this country, how are we going to pay for all the programs we want, social and daycare and pharma, and also pay our debt and, and, and these kinds of things. So it roads go to prosperity on these things. So I wouldn't call it protectionism. I would call it updated thinking and, and looking at the national strategies, the national interests, just like every other successful country is doing and has been doing for some time. And when we talk about security, IP, and China, I can't help but recall an article that I read from Bloomberg in July about Nortel's technology potentially being stolen to support Huawei's rise and and economic growth. And your experience at BlackBerry, your experience in business more broadly, I mean, we can put all of our efforts into commercializing Canadian technology and growing Canadian companies. But if this technology is just going to get stolen down the road and we don't have strong frameworks in place to prevent that, then I kind of throw up my hands and think, how, how is it 
that we aren't policing that kind of behavior in a more serious way? How is it that we have let that kind of hacking occur without strong response for so long? Yes, we have people um, sneaking through the back door and taking things, but we also have policies that we open the front door and welcome them in and say, please come help yourself. So (laughs) they don't have to use the back door anymore. They just partner with our best universities and take our best taxpayer-funded IP, whether it's AI for Google from U of T or Huawei telecommunications company from across Canada. We also welcome them to take our best young talent that's graduating up to 90% of the best graduates from computer science, the top computer science program at, at University of Waterloo now leave. And we put these big companies in our incubators beside our most promising small companies where they can pick off their IP and talent very easily. So they don't have to go through the back door anymore. And most of these other countries have created very careful nurturing and protective environments for their, their top talent, their top IP, and their top data, and their promising companies. And because they understand that it's different than the production economy where you want to bring in the big company that you can get into supply chain. What is Uber's supply chain in Canada or Facebook's or Google's? The the ideas economy doesn't work like the production economy. So you need an updated approach to these kinds of issues. They don't even pay taxes here. They don't even pay taxes here. And we need the revenue to pay for this beautiful country. (laughs) There's an example, actually. I I credit to your work with the Council of Canadian Innovators, but also credit to your work establishing uh, CG because Taylor Owen, who I spoke to previously, uh, he's written very powerfully, I think, about the need to reset an agenda for platform governance, but has also written about the need to reform our tax system and ensure that these big tech companies pay their fair share where they're profiting. Well, we don't even charge consumption tax with GST on these kinds of services in Canada. So we actually treat them better than we treat our Canadian services. And you have to understand that when Trump did the tax reform, he said you can bring your data back, bring your your, your cash back, one-time tax holiday of 10%. But thereafter, all of your global IP has to be taxed in America. The tax reform of the Trump administration is also very neo-mercantilist in that it's grabbing all the tax base for the U.S. for their revenue. And it shows the competitive nature of tax bases where it used to be in the production economy, you taxed on your value out of production. Now we've moved to the taxing on your value out of ownership. And if we don't own it based on the system, we don't get any of the revenue. And so, yeah, you're seeing how this game plays out on the, it, when you call the spillovers, now one of the negative spillovers of the big tech is erosion of the tax base. And there are many other negative spillovers too, which I, I talked about some of them a couple a couple minutes ago. It is the curiosity of Canadian politics that somehow Stephen Harper scared everyone about a Netflix tax when it really was just asking <laughs> these companies to pay sales tax in Canada. I, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I have never understood it, but... Well, uh, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. They made a political issue to poke ourselves in the eye. And and, it, and then, you know, the liberals had to match that to, to say that they're not tax raisers. You're absolutely right. It's an absurd, an absurd competition. <laughs> now, a political issue that I understood to a greater degree, and I saw problems with fairly early on, was the Sidewalk Labs and the Smart Cities Project in Toronto. And I want to pull those pieces apart because sometimes when we think of smart cities here in Toronto, we might now say, well, I I don't know if that's a good idea because of all of the negative press surrounding sidewalk labs. But the idea of smart cities shouldn't be thrown out 
with the way that that particular project was managed. And you've mentioned when we think of a data strategy, there's an iteration of one where we could create value through smart cities, publicly managed smart cities, public governance of, of data. Do you see that coming back? If it is to come back, is there a way of getting this idea off the ground in Canada again? Yeah, of course. There was an original sin in its sort of what I would call the democratically responsible approach in the waterfront to Toronto. And then there was a, a naivety on the economics, which was the secondary issue. The first issue on the democratic sin is it was approached in a post-political basis where a rogue institution created a partnership with a vendor. And it gave the vendor the responsibility to design the data governance. So the first thing you have to do is design the governance frameworks. And that's a legislative responsibility, federally, provincially. So you have no rules to manage this. And these, as you know, these are incredibly consequential. And so we didn't, we didn't have those rules. If you want smart cities and how you want them, that needs to be a conversation between citizens and their government. And that second part also did not happen. So those two post-political non-democratic things were the original sin that made this a global scandal and, and embarrassed Canada. Then the second part is if you do those economic frameworks, which we're talking about IP and data governance here, so that you capture it, and you have a conversation between citizens and their government that says, yes, I want to do something, then you have to approach it in a, in a way where you capture the economic benefits of IP and data for the benefit of our Canada's economy, pay for it. And, and here we had the largest economic project in the history of Canada with a volunteer board with no IP or data expertise dealing with the most sophisticated company, I would argue, in the world without an understanding of, of how we need to approach these matters, where it's unambiguous that would have actually cost Canada on all of these different areas uh, that we've talked about, because Toronto has around 15 top world-class smart city companies. None of them were consulted on this project. None of them have ever been consulted by Waterfront Toronto. And again, that's a strange thing, just like the HST issue. It's a strange thing where you have an agency that doesn't talk to your own companies about possibly being involved in the largest project in the country's history, but then the agency of, of volunteers board and no expertise that this is going to be an economic driver. It, it's no way to approach something like this. And, 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 and so we, you know, they manufactured their own scandal. And if they revisit these approaches, we have a chance to harness the benefits economically and non-economically for Canada, yes. It might be the best example here in Toronto, at least, and, and maybe recently in Canada, that if you don't take privacy by design seriously, if you don't take that idea that you expressed previously that privacy and economic development have to go hand in hand and, and you shouldn't be pulling them apart, that if we had built privacy in from the get-go to assure citizens and build that public trust, and there was a clear public governance framework for that data, then you can start to talk about different technologies that might improve citizens' lives in how we get around the city and how we build out our city. But if you don't build that trust and, and guarantee that you're protecting my individual data, then I'm not going to trust in that economic development project. And we really don't, I think, take seriously or haven't, and I hope we start to take more seriously that idea of privacy by, by design and building that privacy in from the get-go. I mean, even the recent exposure notification application, if we had a legislative 
framework for data use. I'm glad the way CDS designed it, but we could have done a lot more with even a contact tracing app. I I personally think if there was a clear public governance framework enshrined in law to say, here's how the data will be used, here are the restrictions, and we're going to delete the data on the way outside of this pandemic. But that was never part of the public conversation in any way whatsoever. Yeah. The one thing that I would say, which is extraordinarily important, is that this issue of data has moved well beyond privacy. It's, it's a critical right, it's a human right, but it's much more about human autonomy and, and, and data touches national security, it touches democracy, it touches mental health, it touches uh, personal autonomy, and it also breaks markets. And so what the companies are trying to do is trick, the, trick people into thinking that it's just a personal privacy decision. And in fact, it, it, it's much more about uh, personal autonomy, and, and it's it's public good nature that affects your decision, affects others, uh, kind of like pollution is. It's not an individual decision. And, and it's, it's also dual use in that it goes into other realms. So this is, I would say privacy by design is anachronistic. It's much more about the, the trusted role of who has this data, has the ability to repurpose it in ways that can hurt me or help me. And how do I make sure whoever has that data, I've got considerable oversight and, and, and influence and, and control of them because they, they can really drive my future, whether I choose to or not, because I make that decision or somebody else makes that decision. So we, much, we have to look at this in, in, a, in a lens of, I would say, of not privacy, but control. And, and to that point, when we move away from privacy and we talk about broader societal harms, we, you and I have spoken at length previously about the harms and the need for greater oversight of Facebook's algorithm and, and the algorithms employed by, by big tech that are not accountable but can cause great harm. And when we look at the current pandemic, there was a recent report that there have been billions of views of health misinformation on these platforms. And you are a very wealthy man. I'm not. I will never have your wealth, I don't think. But you are a very wealthy man, as is Mark Zuckerberg. And what I can't really comprehend is if you are a billionaire and you see the harms wrought on the platform that you've created, why would you not aim to fix these problems at all costs, even if it meant you're going to earn a little bit less? I mean, you are already a a very wealthy individual. And you are closer to Zuckerberg's frame of mind in that way than, than I would be. But if you were in his shoes, wouldn't you be doing everything you could to, to stop that kind of harm? Well, it goes to the morality of running a company. And, and I was deeply involved in the Egyptian Tahir Square, where they wanted Brim's codes. And uh, I remember it vividly where the head of security for Mubarak's regime called and said, give us the code so we'll pull the plug on BlackBerry and <laughs> said, I won't do it. And it's well documented. And they pulled the plug and the regime toppled and they put the plug back in. But you ask a very good question on the morality or the amorality and, and your, your heritage minister said these firms are immoral. And uh, they talked about what they've done for preying on vulnerable children and the Rohingya crisis and spreading misinformation and breaking democracy. And it's, it's yes, that you, you, you can't trust that these these firms will will behave in your best interests, and and yet we had an approach of voluntary regulation by them. So no, there's a moral element, and we have to regulate for our best interests. And you can't count on their morality, and they've shown that. 
But you also have to understand that when we talk about trade agreements in the 21st century, they're not about liberating, liberalizing um, tariffs. They're about mega regulatory agreements. And Chapter 19 and Chapter 20, amongst many others in the new U.S. MCA, disables our ability to look at their algorithms and how they're behaving in hurting organizations and how we can implement standards and how we can, you know, look after um, data residency. So you now see that trade agreements are fundamentally about disabling our economic and non-economic management of our futures. And we have to be much shrewder in managing ourselves with these kinds of companies and we can't just run willy-nilly into USMCA or, or any of the other trade agreements because they're, they're not trade agreements anymore. The, the word free trade doesn't appear in the new USMCA. They're mega regulatory agreements where the big player gets to remotely manage our economy on these kinds of issues because they're substantially lobbied by firms, like you've mentioned, who we question their moral center. And our legislators, are, their job is to look after Canadians. And so, yes, this is the nexus of these kinds of issues as we we come into the throne speech, how do we want to manage Canada for its future? On that issue of safe harbor, obviously as an individual parliamentarian looking at the USMCA, you're looking at it as an all or nothing kind of proposition because <clears throat> the die is cast when it when it comes to Parliament. But when you look at section or chapter nineteen I should say, Damien Collins, who I worked closely with on the international committee he's a uk parliamentarian and he reaches out because they're going through brexit and they're looking at a trade deal as between the uk and us and he says i'm interested in chapter 19 and does this preclude the regulation of algorithms in relation to harmful content potentially and i read it and it looks like it might be problematic is one thing i i, I take safe harbor I, I think there's a role a strong role actually for safe harbor to say if you are a, a, a proper host of content you and you are only a host then you can't necessarily be held accountable for the content that other people are uploading and that you are merely hosting but as soon as your algorithm plays an active role in promoting content that you profit from i think the situation changes demonstrably and yet my reading of 19 and the bureaucrats' answers that I got back when I asked the questions, I, I think just affirm the concern that you've raised and that I would share, which is even if these big firms are actively profiting from content that they promote through their own algorithms, the Chapter 19 provisions and Safe Harbor, as we understand it in the U.S. and now in Canada, would preclude us from putting, imposing new rules. Well, that is substantially true. In many respects, not all respects, but then that goes to the point that we need strategies where we control our data ourselves much more and not let other firms do this for us. And, and we have to be very careful when people misconstrue these as free speech issues. Free speech is where the government interferes with your ability to speak. This is not about free speech. This is about a business model that applies algorithms to promote certain other speech for the purposes of triggering negative emotions to hijack your personal economy. This is about a business decision, not about government regulating free speech. So people are manipulating words here and um, we have to start revisiting how do we get back our sovereignty on these forces that are creating depression and anxiety in our children, creating security risks, taking down our prosperity, compromising our democracy, compromising free market. And as I said at the beginning in our conversation, we benefited in this country for 100 years on the design of institutions and programs and cooperatives and national strategies that built our prosperity and security for 100 years. 
And now in this changed economy, where we've missed the first 20 years of this seismic shift, it is incumbent upon our political leaders to ensure that they look after what they inherited so that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, Canadians will look back and say they, they looked after us, our future in this in this time of, of great change. And and, and I, I can't stress enough the import and urgency of these IP and date issues. And you have to understand that there just was a report that came out. China published 30,000 AI patents last year, a tenfold increase from five years ago when you first came into government. So IP to control data has actually become a, a soaring international debate. And Canada is the only country of major AI companies per the World Intellectual Property Organization that's seen its AI patents decline in the past few years. So we're not even, we're not playing the IP game. We're not playing the data game and we're not playing the IP for data. And, and it's got incredibly serious consequences in this changed world. And we have to take this very serious. We have to understand it's contended, but it's also very, very technical and expert driven kind of like neurosurgery. You have to be a neurosurgeon to do it. And to play in this game, think of how, I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a smart person, you're diligent. Look at how much you've learned in the past three, four years on this file by paying tremendous attention. And then every day you realize there's more to learn. Just that narrow focus. And and I, I trust and hope the government will harness that expertise. And other domestic experts, when they create their policies, we're seeing assertions that they're going to create these policies where our degrees of latitude have been lessened under the proposed new USMCA. You mentioned previously the ability of competition commissioners to now work together and the and the willingness to work together to tackle what others have called data opolies. And, and there are obvious problems with the concentration of data. If I want to express my frustration with Facebook's practices, I go to Instagram, they're owned by Facebook. I go to WhatsApp, they're owned by, they're owned by Facebook. And it really is an oligopoly of big tech. And in the report that the Council of Innovators put out, lots of good ideas, but I didn't see a great focus on oligopolies as presenting challenges to competition. And yet in Canada, and through the industry committee, we saw challenges recently from the national grocer oligopoly for wages. We've seen challenges routinely. I hear concerns about the affordability of wireless services, and that's an oligopoly in our telecommunication system. We see an oligopoly in our banking system. We have an oligopoly problem, it looks like, here in Canada that also impedes competition and potentially economic growth. Is there, If you were in my shoes, is there a way of, of, of leaning into that problem in, in a useful way? Yeah, and, and understand that this report was generated by companies, and we have several thousand involved in our in our consultations on this. Yes, a national data strategy would include looking at viable markets and, and fair competition amongst privacy, amongst industrial strategies, amongst standards, amongst looking at FDI and trade agreements. So when you say a national data strategy or IP strategy, understands that that embeds many of those marketplace framework regulators in Canada, which includes our privacy commissioner, our and our competition bureau commissioner, and also we're seeing uh, some hints that the CRTC commissioner is going to be given some new powers. So, yeah, there's many regulators on that. But you know, economics begins with norms. You say, what is it that I want? I want a safe kids getting to and from school safe. Then you look at a suite of of initiatives to serve that. It's not just well, speed limits are. 50 kilometers an hour or 40, you need crosswalks, you need street lights, you need curbs, you need education, you need 
bright clothing. And so in a sense, if we want to be okay in this, we have to look at a set of initiatives that together gives us what we want, of which the Competition Bureau and the Privacy Commission are two, two very important ones. But nonetheless, we need more than that because the nature of the intangible economy is it moves non-linearly. In the tangible economy, if you get 90% right, you tend to get 90% of the benefits. In the intangible economy, if you get 90% right, you get 10% of the benefits. It's very, very punishing to lack of expertise and incompleteness, which is why I I encourage bringing experts into these files, which it's, it's well past due for Ottawa to do that. And I've read recently one expert in innovation, Mariana Mazzucato, who's talked about national innovation funds and where governments contribute significant funding for research, which is ultimately commercialized, and then the private sector profits, that government should take royalties and replenish that fund and be able to grow more companies, and and we see economic growth in that way. Is that a viable idea, do you think? It is, and I, and I, I know Mariana well, and I like her work. The one part of Mariana's work which I would challenge is, yes, I agree with what she says there, but she presupposes the marketplace frameworks are there for a fair harnessing of those benefits. And so she is right. There's a place for the state and the state deserves benefits. But in Canada, she's presupposing we have a harnessing framework to get some of the benefits, whether it's public or private, from our investments, whereas in fact, we have become the global philanthropists of our best ideas. It's become a rivalrous system, and which is the basis between the battle the, 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 between the US and China right now. And quite frankly, it's these rules, which is the basis on the Europeans and US on TTIP is falling down. So you cannot be passive on the framework. You have to be very active and very deliberate, like we talked about the Huawei research or the, the data and so on. But then you go to the point where what's the role of the state in these investments and what's the fair apportionment between those two? That's extremely fair. But you cannot be silent on the other point, which we spent most of our time talking about today, which is, do you have the capacity, public or private, to reap those rewards into your nation state? And that's where Canada's inactivity in the past 20 years of shift has meant that our investments have have leaked out to the world and not reasonably uh, stayed to the benefit of Canadian citizens and why we have all these economic challenges. And you mentioned Huawei as an example, but then I also read Tesla has similarly benefited from Canadian funding for research in the clean tech sector that then has the, the commercialization of that publicly funded research ultimately is flowing to Tesla through, I think, Dalhousie. And when it comes to clean tech, I recently spoke to Jane Goodall about the need for sustainable growth, not growth at all costs, that we are damaging our planet. And the current pandemic is an expression of that, that we have disrespected animals and our planet for in pursuit of unending profit, despite the, the potential costs and, and the real costs in, in, in many cases. And when you look at clean tech specifically, there's going to be a strong focus on a green and resilient recovery in this throne speech. I don't know exactly what the details will be, but we know that that's going to be a big picture part of this. We ought to be taking that these IP considerations into that conversation, obviously. Are, are there other ideas or considerations that you would bring to bear as a matter of economic growth in clean tech for more sustainable growth? Sure. I was the private sector representative on the UN High Panel for Growth for the Green Economy. Ban Ki-moon asked me to do that. And, and 
I work great, closely on the economic portions of this, so I, I'm familiar uh, with this file. There are four key things that we have to look at in, in this, the, the key frameworks, and they're embedded in the CCI document. One, you have to have an IP strategy for clean tech, and that is urgent and it has to be comprehensive. Two, we have to have a data strategy for clean tech, whether it's for resources or agriculture or smart cities or whatever you want to talk about clean tech. Number three, we have to relook at these trade agreements. They're not trade agreements anymore. They're mega regulatory agreements that takes away our degrees of latitude to capture economic benefits. And then four, we have to see that we, we need to turn our focus much more to our domestic companies through procurement and growth and talent, not through foreign direct investment, because the foreign direct investment in, in the tech world, green or otherwise, has negative spillovers. So this represents a U-turn in Canada's economic policies of the last 20 years. And so if we're going to go for green, we have to make sure that we also look after the economy and the prosperity so that when we spend a dollar, we turn it into $10, not into 10 cents. It's a good place to end. So my last question is more about the difference one makes in politics versus the difference one potentially makes through philanthropy. You've made, a, I think, a significant difference post your BlackBerry career. And I don't know as much about your career during the BlackBerry days, and you were probably involved in philanthropy then too. But have you ever considered politics? Um, no, I, I think I'm, I can have, a, I enjoy my life very much. I'm very active <laughs> in public policy and philanthropy, and I think I can have lots of effects not being a political actor, but I, I enjoy the great richness of meeting uh, those uh, people like yourself, and, and I admire those that do public service, but I, I think I'm more suited outside the, <laughs> the public office realm. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to having you back as a, as a witness at the industry committee, so long as I stick around there post-throne speech, and uh, I'll definitely be in touch to pick your brain on these issues going forward, because it's, it's helpful for me, certainly. I, I have learned a lot in the course of private and data in the last five years. But on IP, I have found you to be an incredible resource and I'll keep leaning on you as, as needed if that's all right. Pleasure's all mine. Keep up your great work. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Please leave a positive review, hopefully a positive review, on whatever platform you happen to listen to this on. Share it with your friends. And remember to let me know future guests and topics on social media at BEYNate. Thanks so much.